You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Mananan, Kenway, Toves, Loining, Two Gun Tony, Drunken Dak, Redbeard, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course, our Quartermaster's Hunter, Samuel, Adam, and Birdsong. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. The first parliamentary fronde was closer to what we might see as a people's revolution. The people of Paris and much of central and northern France were in open revolt against the king and his mother, and mostly the Catholic Cardinal Mazarin. Now, Cardinal Mazarin was the lightning rod for all of the Frondeur's ire, but the Fronde wasn't an anti-Catholic movement. There were a few Huguenots in the Fronde's leadership, and we'll talk about them in a bit, but most Frondeurs were Catholic, as were most French people. One of the key leaders in the First Fronde was the Archbishop of Paris, another cardinal known as Cardinal de Retz. The primary difference between the two cardinals, between Mazarin and de Retz, was their nationality. De Retz did come from an Italian family, but he was born Jean-Francois on French soil. He was a Frenchman, while Giulio Mazarino would never be. Now, de Retz was a bad cardinal, but a good frondeur. He was a remarkably honest and candid chronicler of the entire revolt. He wrote about it in depth in his memoirs and talked about the sins and failings of all of the Frondeur leadership, including his own. Quote, I did not act the devotee because I could not be sure how long I should be able to play the counterfeit. Finding I could not live without some amorous intrigue, I managed an amour with Mademoiselle de Pomereau, a young coquette who had so many sparks at her devotions that the apparent business of others was a cover for mine. I came to a resolve to go on in my sins, but I was fully determined to exert my utmost to save other souls, though I took no care for my own. End quote. That's the kind of sinful honesty I can get behind. I like this guy. But many of his fellow frondeurs didn't, especially the Huguenot and humanist elements within their ranks. Oddly, though, 
Even though Cardinal de Retz stood in opposition to Mazarin, the very young King Louis and the Queen Mother, Anne of Austria, seemed to have held him in high regard. Maybe it was just to mollify the people of Paris, but when the First Fronde ended, the royal family let de Retz keep his job and even appointed him envoy to Rome. But that comes after today's events. When the First Fronde ended, officially, Mazarin signed the Peace of Rueil that declared King Louis the rightful monarch of France. Everyone thought that that would signal an end to the civil war and a return to courtly infighting, but they were only half right. This is episode 146, Playing Mars. The courtly posturing did resume in earnest almost immediately, but the fighting wasn't over. There were three families at the center of all of it, all of whom we met last time. There were the three siblings from the Condé branch of the House of Bourbon. We all remember the sister, the Duchesse de Longueville, one of the leaders in the parliamentary fronde. But then there was the younger brother, Le Petit Condé. He was another fronde leader. However, the elder brother we only talked about briefly. Le Grand Condé was the outlier in their family. Le Grand Condé led the army that liberated Paris from his siblings. A cynical person might suspect that he sat on the sidelines during the Fronde to hedge his family's bets. Should the Fronde prevail, two Condé siblings were involved in it. But should it fail, the much more likely possibility, the Grand Condé liberated Paris and could claim a position of influence in the royal court. Le Grand Condé believed that his support in the Fronde deserved a position in the court, but not just any position. He thought he deserved the job of First Minister of State, a position which belonged to Cardinal Mazarin. The power struggle between the Grand Condé and Mazarin was a great courtly drama. It really defined most of 1649, but that's nothing compared to what was going to happen next. And that comes into play with the second family. Now, I can't pronounce their last name, so I'm not going to assault your ears with it. But they played their cards very much like the Condé did. The younger brother in that second family, the Duc de Bouillon, was in the Palais Justice alongside the other frondeurs. We talked about him last time. But the elder brother, Henri, the Viscount de Turenne, was... Well, I'll tell you what it reminds me of. In American politics, people tend to be pretty divided, but military officers tend to be kind of above that, or maybe outside of it. Not all of them, and not all the time, but the one that jumps to my mind is someone like a Colin Powell. They don't seem to get wrapped up in the partisan nature of politics. That's the role that the Viscount of Turin played in France. The Viscount rose in prominence as a skilled and talented commander during the Dutch War against Spain, then in the Thirty Years' War, and eventually served as the Marshal General of France. That was the highest rank in the French army, but it was kind of a new rank. It had been created by Cardinal Richelieu when he abolished the office of Grand Constable. The Grand Constables had been the commanders-in-chief of the army, and in fact that actually plays a role in our story today. 
Richelieu abolished the Grand Constables and made the Marshal's General a thing because he believed that the Commander-in-Chief should be the King, not some separate officer. That established royal hegemony over the army, which upset a number of army officers. After the First Fronde ended, the Vicomte de Turin stayed out of the political infighting. He even left France for a while, which upset the First Minister. Cardinal Mazarin wasn't happy with that, and how he deals with it is going to show us how his leadership style stacks up against that of Richelieu, and it's not great. All three of the Condé siblings were plotting against Cardinal Mazarin, as was the Duc de Bouillon, but Turin wasn't. Turin was just sitting on the sidelines, without much of an army to his name. Regardless, though, Cardinal Mazarin decided to remove Turin from his post as Marshal General and to include him in the flurry of arrest warrants that he issued against all of the other frondeurs. In the wake of her brother's arrests, the Duchesse de Longueville fled central France for Turin, who was now on the chopping block. Turin prepared for war as best he could without the support of the royal crown, and Will and Ariel Durant describe the fallout of this decision on the part of Cardinal Mazarin thus. Quote, Mazarin, playing Mars, led an army toward Flanders and defeated the invincible Turin, Meanwhile, de Retz persuaded the Parliament to renew its demand for the exile of Mazarin. Losing his nerve, the Cardinal ordered the release of the imprisoned prisoners, and then, fearing for his life, fled to Bruille. This was, on the part of the Cardinal, a declaration of war against the former frondeurs. But he almost immediately lost his nerve, so in this war that Mazarin had started, the rebels were winning. They had the disbarred Marshal General on their side, and now all of the resources of all of their ancestral lands. They had everything they needed to win. While the first civil war is considered a parliamentary struggle, this second outbreak of conflict is considered a noble or aristocratic frond. However, those aristocrats made some bad decisions. The rebel lords declared war against the royal crown, which made some of the neutral lords uncomfortable. Then they signed alliances with both Spain and with England under the person of Cromwell. This made many of those same neutral nobles even more nervous. And then the rebel lords declared their intent to establish a republic in France. Now, I love this move, I think it's a good one, but it was a bridge too far for some of the aristocracy. And it was in this moment that the queen saw her opening. Well, you know, technically King Louis XIV, but he was only 13, so really it was the queen. She banished Cardinal Mazarin from France, and it was at this point that she reinstated de Retz and made him envoy to Rome, which appeased the people of Paris, and then the queen offered Turin his place as marshal general. Turin gladly agreed to this return to power and to his post. The first target at which the queen pointed the marshal general was a breeding ground for rebellion, the city of Orléans. And that brings us to our next major player in this story, 
whom Will Durant describes as one of the most famous of France's many famous women. You might remember the Duc d'Orléans, the former king's brother, the current king's uncle, who was chased out of France for treason along with his daughter. That daughter, Marie de Bourbon, the king's first cousin, was strong and tall. She was also proud. She was known to have said, quote, I am of a birth that does nothing that is not great and noble. End quote. These traits earned her the nickname La Grande Mademoiselle, but they did not help her when she sought to sell her support for the king with a marriage proposal. She wanted to marry King Louis XIV, her first cousin, in order to be brought back into the fold of loyalty. Louis, though, was never going to marry La Grande Mademoiselle. I mean, put aside the whole first cousin thing for a second, the King of France was intended to marry maybe the Infanta of Spain, or maybe some Italian or German princess, or someone relevant to international politics. That's what kings do. He was never going to marry a rebellious cousin. At this moment, I want to take a quick pause. We'll get back to the story at hand in a moment, but I want to discuss why we're telling this story in the first place. I'd like you to imagine that you're a sailor in 17th century France, maybe northern France, in one of the channel ports, perhaps. You could be in the navy, or on a merchant ship, or even just a coastal fisherman, but whatever you choose, that's you, right now. Right across the channel, a stone's throw away, the English just overthrew the monarchy. They established a theocratic military dictatorship, that's true, but they overthrew the monarchy all the same. Just next door, the Dutch had a whole war to establish their own republic. Now, you're a sailor, you've been to those Dutch and English ports a ton. You know all about this stuff. But let's add to that. You're a sailor in 17th century France, and a Protestant, much like the Dutch and the English and several of those nobles who are currently in open rebellion against the king, the very, very Catholic king who appears to be under the influence of an evil Roman cardinal. If you were that sailor, where would you put your loyalty? Perhaps in the... Huguenot lords from your neck of the woods that proposed to establish a republic in place of this theocratic monarchy, maybe? I want you to keep that in mind. I want you to try and hold on to that mindset while we move on, because these sailors were learning about everything we're talking about today as it happened. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions. 
a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. The king's first cousin, the Grand Mademoiselle Marie de Bourbon, very much like Joan of Arc before her, complete with a full suit of armor on the back of a war horse, marched on the walls of her home city of Orléans. And did I mention, by her side she had an honor guard of other high-born women on their own war horses with their own armor, brandishing their own swords. The princess of Orléans was denied entry to her home city, and ordered her own soldiers to blow a hole in the wall, and once the wall was down, she marched through with her honor guard of heavily armed, beautiful Amazons carrying the flag. And even if that's not exactly how it happened, isn't that the story that you and your friends, who are also sailors in 17th century France, isn't that the story that you would tell? These are the kind of myths that blossomed during the Second Fronde, when a bunch of the French boucaniers who would soon be active in the Caribbean were still young men in France. Now, Marie de Bourbon did blow a hole in the Wall of Orléans and did march through, but I imagine that when those young sailors in the Channel ports pictured that event, she wasn't wearing the serviceable armor she did wear, but instead video game armor, you know, maybe a chainmail bikini, for example. Anne-Marie was a badass with an amazing suit of armor, but if she had chainmail bikinis, she saved them for her Swedish girlfriend. But that comes later. For the time being, she still harbored dreams of being queen, and in the summer of 1652, Anne-Marie de Bourbon marched on Paris with her army. But she wasn't the only army marching on Paris. We should note at this point that there was another pretty major war going on between France and Spain at the time, so there were armies all over the place. We'll talk more about that next time, but all of those armies were hungry and terrorizing the populace, and everyone was eager to end the fighting. So when the Lady of Orléans marched on Paris in an attempt to capture her future husband, to execute Mazarin, and to imprison her mother-in-law her prospective mother-in-law, two other armies marched as well. Anne-Marie did capture some of the city, including the Bastille, which she turned into a fortress, but the king's forces held out at the palace. Turin and the king's army marched from the front with the Spanish Netherlands up to the northeast, while the elder Condé brother marched from the southeast. Those two armies the army of Turin, the king's army, and the army of La Grande Condé, met outside of the walls of Paris, near the Bastille, on the 2nd of July, 1652. Turin, the marshal general, 
one of the most decorated officers in French history, was a better general than Le Grand Condé. He held the walls, guarding Paris from the rebel army under Le Grand Condé, and he was definitely winning, pushing Condé back and routing his army. But then, from behind Turin's forces, there was a thundering of cannon. The guns of the Bastille opened up and crashed into the back of the king's forces. Anne-Marie de Bourbon had to threaten the artillery officer with her sword, but she fired upon the king's army. And I imagine her standing atop the walls of the Bastille in full plate mail, she and her honor guard of Amazons holding swords aloft while the smoke clears and Turin's army scatters. Probably not how it really happened, but Anne-Marie de Bourbon was the hero of the day. She was the Lady of Paris and the champion of the Second Fronde. They were victorious. So, you are you. You're that young sailor at a tavern on the coast of the Channel, maybe enjoying a drink with some friends and talking about the victory of the Republican army. You're toasting and laughing and drinking some cheap wine, but you're enjoying the thoughts of the brave new world in which you find yourself. The injustices of the past were now over in this new republic. In short, you feel hope. But that wouldn't last, would it? Thanks largely to the selfish incompetence of the aristocracy. Le Grand Condé, a prince, remember, ran into the same problems that have doomed revolution after revolution. All of a sudden, as soon as they achieved victory, they had the responsibilities of leadership on their shoulders without the resources to see them through. The Frondeurs had won, but France was still under imminent invasion from Spanish forces, and the Frondeurs didn't have access to the royal treasury. They weren't able to pay the troops. Now, they might have been able to if they had pooled their resources, and Marie de Bourbon was really, really rich, but they didn't pay their troops. So the army began to desert. And when the cardinal, Cardinal Mazarin, remained unarrested and free and alive, the people of Paris, who were singularly concerned with Mazarin, began to riot. Now, the young King Louis and his mother fled Paris once again. Mazarin fled as well, but he went into yet another exile. For four months, the Frondeurs tried to get Paris under control, but it was really the mob that ruled the city. And the propertied bourgeois middle class began to panic at this state of affairs, what with the rioting and the property destruction. Will Durant describes this period of fizzling out, quote, Cardinal de Retz used his influence to encourage loyalty to the king. On October 21, the royal family re-entered Paris peacefully. The sight of the young monarch, 14, handsome and brave, charmed the Parisians. The streets resounded with vive la roi. Almost overnight, public agitation subsided and order was restored. Not by force, but by the aura of royalty the prestige of legitimacy, and the half-unconscious belief of the people in the divine right of kings. By February 6, 1653, Louis felt strong enough to recall Mazarin again and to re-establish him in all his former powers. The Second Fronde was over. End quote. Now, 
I read that in part because there are a few ideas in there that I wanted to get across, but that I disagree with. There's the whole unconscious belief in the divine right of kings stuff, which I completely disregard. I think the people of Paris craved stability no matter where it came from. But Durant also says that the Second Fronde was over, and it was effectively over, but that doesn't mean that Will Durant was right about the divine right of kings stuff. But the rebellion, the Fronde, was absorbed into the larger, ongoing Franco-Spanish War. Though, really, the Frondeur's part in that was pretty inconsequential, especially once the royals signed an alliance with the Stuarts over in England. We'll get back to the situation in France in a second, but once again, let's pause. You're still that sailor, sitting in maybe a different tavern this time, sharing some drinks once again, but there's a different feeling in the room. All the hope you had had just a few weeks earlier, gone. The evil Cardinal Mazarin was back in power, and the idea of a republic was dead. Now, the drinks probably weren't rum, the sugar trade was still in its infancy. There probably weren't any parrots around. But there were a bunch of guys in eye patches holding their swords and grumbling about the government. And you know how, in the U.S. at least, every time we have a presidential election, when things start to get really contentious near the end, when people begin to get really hyperbolic about the whole thing, some obnoxious pundit or several will begin to threaten to leave the country should whichever person they hate win the election. We've all heard that, but of course those people never do. But what if those pundits already had a ship ready, and had a few dozen like-minded people to go with them, and instead of a Democrat or a Republican who will change some policies in ways that they disagree with, they're facing an absolute monarch who's going to literally murder them for their religious beliefs. And what if, instead of Canada as their refuge, they have a tropical paradise on the other side of the world with no government whatsoever to tell them what to do? And no offense, Canada, you're all great, but, you know, it's chilly up there. What I'm trying to do here is to frame the mindset of those early French buccaneers in relation to what was happening right here in France. Over the next decade or so, due largely to the policies of King Louis XIV and his counselors, there was going to be a huge wave of French men and women that flowed across the Atlantic, bound mainly for Tortuga. And that brings us, at very long last, to the king. Up to this point, Louis XIV has been kind of a minor character in the drama. He was a boy, occasionally on the run from his home. Now, he had a powerful first minister of state and a powerful queen mother, but they were really in power this entire time. Now, though, Louis found he had an entire kingdom rallying around him and glorying in their monarch. But now that we're here at the point of it all, I wonder where to begin. A biography of Louis XIV, well, I've attacked that from a lot of angles, but I don't like any of them. I mean, do we need to know about Louis's love of dancing and horse riding, or about his many, many love affairs? Although, I will share one thing. 
One writer in France at the time who did not like the king said, quote, Had he been just a private individual, he would have created the same havoc with his love affairs. End quote. Louis was a charmer. But I just can't bring myself to care about that personal stuff. It's not really relevant to our story. Now, of course, there was his wife, and we'll talk about her next time. But instead of all of that personal stuff, we're going to talk about the king's character and his policies, which really brings us back to his counselors. Cardinal Mazarin continued running the show after the end of the Fronde for nine more years, although he did so with the king's full support. Mazarin was a skillful diplomat, but he was deeply corrupt all of his life. He sold political appointments and access to the king and amassed a huge fortune. But in the interim, while amassing that fortune, he trained the king to vet his appointments, to keep a close eye on those people he put in power. This may be the greatest lesson he taught to the king. On his deathbed, Cardinal Mazarin gave the king one last piece of advice. He told him to be his own chief counselor. And when Mazarin finally did die, the king confessed, quote, I do not know what I should have done if he had lived much longer. End quote. The king was ready to become his own man. And when the king's ministers came before him and asked to whom they should address their questions of policy now that Mazarin was dead, the king replied, quote, To me. Louis took that last piece of advice of his former first counselor to heart. As well as his other pieces of advice, Louis was known to pop in on his advisors unexpectedly and conduct an impromptu investigation. And if he found their conduct wanting, he was known to fire or even arrest them on the spot. At one dinner, held by a finance minister, at which all of the guests ate on plates of silver or gold, Louis decided to arrest the man who he found to be, quote, stealing beyond his station, end quote. But the queen mother convinced Louis to wait until morning in order to not ruin an enchanting evening. However, on the other hand, when King Louis found someone worth keeping around, he promoted them, based almost entirely on merit. And I really hate to praise an absolute monarch who persecuted religious minorities here, but King Louis did an excellent job sifting through the non-noble classes for the very best candidates that France had to offer. Rather than hiring somebody based on a name, he found somebody who could do the job. And as they say, the cream rises. King Louis found his next first minister of state in the character of a man named Jean-Baptiste Colbert. Colbert and King Louis were the future of the French Empire. The first major action of Jean-Baptiste Colbert was to locate Mazarin's vast fortune and to make King Louis the richest monarch in Europe. That, of course, allowed Louis to become the greatest patron of arts in the world, but also to conduct a ton of wars. And Colbert was perfect for that job. Before being raised First Minister of State, Colbert had been the Secretary of the Navy. And the future of the French Empire was in their navy. 
Next time, we're going to follow our imaginary French Huguenot sailors throughout the French Empire on her many, many wars. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has left us a rating or a review wherever it is you listen to the show, everybody who has recommended this show to your friends and family. Without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this, so thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight